0: It's not working.
1: Okay. Cause we did see you last week, but I don't know. I guess.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. I guess my <laughs> computer's
1: having a moment. This morning I tried to deposit something at the ATM and it said they couldn't read my checks. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to be super old school and like go into the bank to deposit the <laughs> check. Like I don't even usually go to the ATM. I usually just deposit checks on my phone, but whatever. Anyway. So I go to the counter, I do, I give her the check. I'm like, do you know why the ATM wouldn't take it? She's like, yeah, the ATM, you know, it just sometimes doesn't want to take checks. Okay. It has literally one job. Okay, okay, well, two jobs, give money and take money. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. humans versus technology, it keeps us humble, right?
0: Using checks is old school.
1: Well, I don't know true. that my
0: grandchildren know how to write a check. <laughs> debit card.
1: A debit card. Yeah. yes all right let us begin we are on we are in the book of Proverbs on chapter 19 page 198 and 199 for those of you who are following along in this text uh chapter 19 verse 12 for those of you who are following along in any other text of Proverbs all right so verse 12 here we go uh. Okay. Naham kakfir za'af melech. A king's vexation is as the roaring of a lion, right? Naham is the roaring kfir. Kfir is a young lion. Some of you may recognize that Hebrew word. Do any of you recognize the word kfir from anywhere? Yeah. Where is that? Baby kfir. What? Baby kfir. Baby
2: kfir.
1: Yeah. That's, That's right. Baby Kfir, uh Bibes is what's his la- is his last name. Uh Kfir and his brother Ariel, those two little redhead boys who were taken hostage by Hamas, and God willing, they should return safe very, 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 very soon. Um so Kfir means a baby lion. And um it is a common Hebrew name for a little boy, a little bit ba- a baby lion. Welcome, Robin, and April. So the roar of a lion is the is like is is what a king's anger is compared to. But his goodwill is as dew upon the grass. So we know that human kings or leaders can be very capricious and their moods can be very unstable. They get very angry, and then everything is terrible with the world. They get very calm, and then everything is fine with the world. Um, in this week's Torah portion, we start reading about the 10 plagues and about Pharaoh and all of the things that are happening to his nation, and he gets very, very volatile, and he says, what are you doing? Get these frogs away from me, and Moses, get over here this second, you know, get rid of these frogs this minute, you know, and then and then Moses says, okay, okay, fine, God, would, would you get rid of the frogs for this? Die, so fine god gets rid of the frogs and then you know pharaoh says oh never mind i don't really want to let the jews go i was just sort of getting mm-hmm. right so we have these volatile moods, like super angry super conciliatory super hard-hearted back and forth like whiplash you know so these are the moods of a human king so um first of all there's a lesson here about the power of anger That when a person gets angry, he can be as dangerous as a lion. And we all know that a person who gets angry can say and do things that are very damaging. That's definitely a recurring theme in this book um, about the negative repercussions of anger. Right. Uh, So but the commentary says the young lion does not go out of his den, but tears anyone who tries to approach him. So is a king when he fumes with displeasure, right? So the lion, the, the lion is like a king because it stays in its in its lair, right? A little baby lion doesn't go out. You know who goes out to make the hunt? The female lion, the lioness, right? The uh, baby lion stays in its lair, but if anybody tries to get near, near it will rip its head off. So a human king who is angry, right? The king doesn't go out mm-hmm. of his palace, but if you try to get near him, if he's angry, you know, stay out of his way. He could rip your head off. We have this story uh, in the Purim story when, you know, Mordechai tells Queen Esther, "You must go to the king and pray on the on the behalf of the Jews." And she says, "I can't do that because if I go to the king without being summoned, he could decide it's off with my head. What kind of business is this? She's his wife." She's not allowed to go talk to him. No, that's how it was. You, you, you come talk to the king without being summoned, you're at risk for the death penalty. And in fact, the Midrash says that when Queen Esther did approach Ahasuerus
3: mm-hmm.
1: on unsummoned, right. That he was at first overwhelmed with anger. And then the angel redirected his hand to extend his golden scepter to Esther in acceptance. Right. So this is the volatility of a king in uncivilized you know, you know I mean it, it's ironic if you think about it, because uh in the ancient story of Purim, the uh the Persians were very cultured and they were very wealthy. And if you read the stories of the the, the, the Purim story begins with a description of a party that lasted for 180 days, they were celebrating what they thought was the downfall of the Jews because the Jews were supposedly supposed to be able to go back to Israel they the, the first temple had been destroyed they were in persia in exile they were they they had a tradition that after 70 years they would be able to go back and the the kingship miscounted and they thought that it was proof that the Jews were not actually going back and so they had a 180 day party to celebrate that And the the Megillah describes all the different, you know, tapestries and wall hangings and all the beautiful furnishings and all the lavish and elaborate food. Like this was no third world country. This was a very civilized country. But nevertheless, it was a country in which a man could kill his wife for coming to talk to him unsummoned. So sometimes you see that the most civilized nations like the Germans in the 1930s who was more civilized, cultured, educated, accomplished than them, and nevertheless, they could behave with such savagery. The IDF is right now uncovering entire cities underground that Hamas has built in Gaza, demonstrating enormous and overwhelming amounts of technological and scientific knowledge that could be used to better the lives of its citizens, and yet they use it for brutality and savagery. That is this young lion who, you know, is just going to rip your head off if it decides that it doesn't like what you represent or what you stand for. But when he is in a good mood, his blessing radiates and refreshes like dew that spreads lushness and life on each individual blade of grass. So this lion, when he's in benevolent mode, right, it's like it, it, it he bestows so much or this king, rather, when he's in benevolent mode, he just he oozes so much good, right? A king, if you're on his good side, you have it made in the shade. I mean, you are set up for life. You will have everything. Look at these Hamasniks who are off in Qatar living their best life in the lap of luxury, right, while their underlings are the ones fighting on the ground. So that is a king. You cross him, he's going to bite your head off. You're on his good side. It's like every blade of grass is getting nourished for you. So does each individual servant of God. So here's another meaning to the metaphor. Each individual servant of God benefits from his blessing at such a time as all are drawn to his radiance. So this benevolent king, part of the meaning of this metaphor is that this benevolent king is God and that when we are like we we can talk to God whenever we want, we don't have to be summoned, right? We're not going to get our head bitten off if we approach God unannounced. Are you kidding me? God always wants to hear from us. Um, And when we do approach God and we do ask for what we want, right, then God has the power and the ability and the desire to sustain us and nourish us like every blade of grass gets its nourishment in order to grow. And God can also nourish and sustain every single one of us. So um, this is a very interesting um, contrast between our God, one God, the one God of the universe versus pagan gods. So one of the things, one of the conversations that happens between Moses and Pharaoh, back to that story is that moses says to pharaoh right everyone knows the famous line let my people go but that's not technically what he said i know that's probably what he said in the movie but if you read the book here's what he he actually said he says let my people go that they may celebrate with me in the desert i let my people go to celebrate with god for three days Every single time Moses says in the Torah, let my people go, it's followed up with to serve God, to celebrate God, something like that. That's always the end of the sentence. Okay, now three days, that, that's a whole different conversation why he said three days. We're going to put that aside for now. But what is this celebrating with God? Viachogu, right? The word to celebrate, that's where the word chag, the root of that word is chag, right? The chagim, our holidays. So what does Pharaoh say to Moses? Mi Hashem Asher Eshma Bakolo. Who is God that I should listen to his voice? What was Pharaoh saying? A God that wants to hang out with you for three days and celebrate? I'm sorry. I never heard of that God. What is that God? I don't understand a God like that. What was he trying to say? The pagan gods, the root of service of pagan gods, right? Right. These gods, if you guys ever learned Greek mythology or you ever have occasion to read up on these things, right? These gods were literally certifiable. Every single one of them had a personality disorder. Every single one of them had anger management issues. Every single one of them had like sexual dysfunction. They were insane. They killed each other. They slept with each other. They kidnapped each other. They killed. They were crazy. What was the job of a person in the face of this pantheon of gods? The service of a person was to placate the angry gods. You bring the sacrifice to placate the angry gods. Pray for the rain so God will, you know, to placate the angry gods from the tsunamis and the hurricanes and the what have you. Here, what was Moses talking about? He's like, I'm not talking about a God that you have to placate because he's angry and because you have to get on his good side. I'm talking about one loving, benevolent God that desires a relationship with us in love and mutuality. God wants to celebrate with us. God wants to hang out with God. God loves us. God is like our father. He wants to be with us. And Pharaoh said, what? I never heard of that God. And Moses was saying, right because our concept of God is qualitatively different in every single way than your concept of God. We're not even talking about apples and oranges. It's a completely different species of God. So this God that we're describing in this verse, this God that rips your head off, if you even come near, right, like a human king, that's the the pagan version of God. Whereas our version of God, that's in the second half of the verse, His goodwill is as dew upon the grass. God only wants good for us. And it's true that that sometimes difficult things happen and we have to understand that, but that too is for our good. Just this morning, I was driving my daughter to school and um, we get to school. Now, admittedly, school is not very far. Why am I driving her? That's a whole other question. Anyway, point being, I'm driving her to school. And as we're getting close to the driveway, she says to me, oh no, I forgot my binder at home which may or may not be a recurring theme in our lives. So um, so she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, do we have time? Can we turn around? I'm like, yeah, I don't have anything pressing, you know, in the next hour, no problem. So we turn back around, we go home, we get her binder. She comes back into the car. And as we're driving back to school, she goes, mommy, this was Hashkacha Pratis. I said, what do you mean? She goes... This was Hashem taking care of me. She goes, you know, some people like these Hashkacha practice stories, you know, like these divine intervention stories, like, oh my gosh, you know, this happened to me. And look, look how it all turned out for the best. But she goes, really? (laughs) This is like my little 13-year-old daughter. I was literally quelling. She goes, really? Like, if someone will ask me for a good Hashkacha practice story, you know, like a good divine intervention story, I should tell them that I was going to school and I forgot my binder and I had to go back and I got my binder and I came late to school. She goes, that's also a Hashkacha practice story. Why? Because really everything Hashem does is for the good. And I'm like, man, it was worth it for this conversation. (laughs) Because she's right. She's right. You know, if we do believe, you know, as it says in this verse, his goodwill is as dew upon the grass that God always desires good for us. Then that means that even when inconvenient or difficult or truly challenging things happen to us, that too is nourishing like dew. That too is somehow good for us, for our growth, for our development as a human being, for the journey of our soul in this world. And of course, that's the difficult job is to try and really ingrain that awareness and our knowledge into our very being. And that requires daily work to really bring this you know, mentality and mindset home in each and every one of us. Okay, welcome Tova, aka Lori. Nice to see you. Okay, thoughts, comments, questions on verse 12. Okay, number 13. Havot aviv bain kasil, a foolish son is the calamity of his father. Videlef torade midyanet isha, and the contentions of a wife are a constant fall of droplets. So, what we're talking about in this verse is that a person's family members, and I'm sure this will come as a shock to every person on this call, a person's family members have the power to cause them a great deal of heartache. Surprise! <laughs> but you didn't know that. <laughs> All right. So, how are we supposed to handle this uh, this issue and this difficulty? All right. So he says in the commentary previously we read this was back in chapter 17 that a foolish son is a vexation to his father. So sometimes, right, and obviously this is written in male terms, but this is applicable to anyone. Sometimes a person has a child who does things that are foolish. Okay. Now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if your kid ever did anything foolish. First of all, that would be Lush and Hara. But second, every single hand would be up. <laughs> there is no such thing as a child who never does anything foolish, right? I mean, just this morning, one of my children did something foolish, which I will not share. But point being, that is just part of life. We watch our kids make mistakes and we watch them do things that are you know not good for them and there's a limit depending on their age depending on their stage depending on the relationship there's a limit to how much we can do about that and sometimes it's just about sitting on your hands and watching it happen and saying this is a muster moment right if in addition a man has quarrels with his wife to contend with so now what if it's not a child what if it's a spouse that's giving you grief right that's obviously much more challenging. Now, I say arguably, because this is something I have actually thought about. You know, if a person has a strong relationship with their spouse, it's much, much, much easier to deal with any of life's challenges. But if a person's contention is with their spouse, then they don't have a team with which to face life's difficulties, right? So he says, if in addition, a man has quarrels with his wife to contend with, the tension in the house becomes unbearable and the home may fall apart. So he says that's why it says in the verse, a foolish son is the calamity of his father and the contentions of a wife are a constant fall of droplets. So it seems like the author is saying here, King Solomon is saying that um, contentions with one's spouse are actually more foundational and that's what will rock the serenity in the home. And that's why it's compared to these, these droplets that are like coming through the roof, right? He says like a house with a leaking roof so uh welcome susan so when a when a person um is not blessed with what we call shalom bias right Shalom bias, peace in the home which it refers to all members of the home but it's usually referencing the marital relationship when that relationship is contentious right it's like it's like the roof is leaking it's like the the foundations the stability of the home are at risk but if if the issues are with one's child then a person has to understand that their child is separate from them and has to live their own separate life and make their own mistakes and figure it out for themselves. Eventually, the goal is that a child should be able to, right, in a healthy situation, individuate, grow up, move out, God willing, create their own homes, meet their own soulmates, right, have their own families, have their own jobs. When a child is able to launch, right, get up grow up, move out, make a life for yourself, hopefully give me some grandkids, okay? Then that is success. The success of a child is to separate from their parents. The success of a spouse is to become more and more one over the years. My husband and I just met with an engaged couple this week whom we are um, giving some uh, marriage education classes prior to their wedding in the fall. And we were talking to them about how the purpose of marriage is to become one. And uh, we referenced a verse from the Torah when it describes the relationship of Adam and Eve. And the Torah says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and become bonded with his wife, and they shall become as one flesh. A couple, ideally, is supposed to become bonded as one. And the more you're together, again, this is an ideal situation, We all know that in real life, things don't always go in ideal terms, right? But in an ideal situation, um, this is what we were telling this young couple, you know, they've been together for seven years. They met in high school. They've been living together for like two years or something like that. And now they're getting married. And we're like, listen, when you're together for five years, you lo- you love each other a certain amount. And then if, when you'll be together for 10 years, you'll love each other even more. When you'll be together for 20 years, you'll love each other even more. Why? Because you become more and more and more bonded and connected over time. That's what a marriage is ideally supposed to be. And if a person doesn't have that, if a person has not been blessed with that particular blessing, right? And look, there's all kinds of blessings. We we pray for prosperity. Some people are blessed with prosperity. Some people are not. Some people are blessed with success of their children some people are not some people are blessed with a strong marital relationship some people are not some people are blessed with good health some people are not we all have our our blessings and our challenges obviously but in in that situation right if a person is not blessed with marital uh strength right then the house I'm, i'm not talking about a person who's living on their own i'm talking about a person who is married and the marriage is difficult then it's like sometimes it feels like the very foundations of the home are at risk But problems with our children has to be viewed, even though it's very, very hard to do this, but it has to be viewed as separate from us. That is their life. And those are their mistakes. And they have to figure it out. And they have to travel their journey, right? And I can show them that they're not alone in the journey. And I can, you know, give them a GPS to find their way. But I cannot become bonded to my child where I'm traveling their path with them. That model is for the marital relationship. Can I ask a question, Rochi? Yes, go ahead and welcome you Is yeah. there any
2: purpose, the fact that these two thoughts are in the same verse, are they not connected um, in some way that, are they completely different? Or is like, to me, it reads that they're related where, if you have this calamity of a foolish son and, and that relates to the marriage, like the marriage is a, fa- I don't know. It seems to me that they're, because it's a one sentence, it seems yeah. like. They're-
1: Interesting. Um, you know, I think there's a couple ways to read it, it in the comment, in, in, in the actual text it seems to be two separate things, right? A foolish son is the calamity of his father. And here's another thought, the contentions of a wife are a constant fall of droplets. Now, obviously um, they're similar things, right? They're both talking about difficulties within the family unit, but the verse does not seem to correlate the two. However, in the commentary, it says, previously we read that a foolish son is a vexation to his father if in addition, a man has quarrels with his wife to contend with. So the commentary does seem to correlate it. Like one is almost building on the other. and and I think what what I'm tr- I think what I'm hearing you say is that many times, um challenges with children can lead to stress on the marital relationship. Is that what you're saying? Well, it, it
2: yes, and it reads as though, Probably, I'm guessing. Maybe I'm projecting that the wife is not going to be happy about this foolish son. And
1: <laughs> right,
2: no, <laughs> that's that's very true.
1: You know, and I've actually seen friends of mine get divorced. Where I'm sure it wasn't the only reason. There's usually not one reason, but there were there were very difficult challenges with the kids. I mean, research bears this out. If a child is diagnosed with special needs, or there's You know, a serious illness with a child, very often the marital foundation will get rocky um, and it can be very, very difficult. A couple will usually either drift apart or fuse more tightly together. So um, but it seems from the commentary that what he's trying to say is a foolish son is a vexation to his father. And then also, in addition to that, now he's also fighting with his wife. And, and what, what I always try to tell parents who are dealing with difficult children, um, and I'm not talking about like the normal rough and tumble of parenting, I'm talking about like kids in crisis, you know, or mental health challenges, really like real things is that they absolutely must put their marriage first because it's so tempting to put the marital work on hold in order to focus 1,000% on the kid in crisis. But that is actually very short-sighted because then the marital relationship gets ignored. And now in addition to having an issue with the kid, now the kid has an issue because their parents are fighting. And that's the last thing a kid in crisis needs. So I, I definitely think you're right that there's a connection. Okay. Welcome, Michelle and Debbie. Okay. Any right.
0: other? Thoughts? Yeah, Laura. I was, I was just gonna say it's just like when you know I, I think bottom line parents often they have very different um, ways of handling crises and the and and obviously the best way to be is a team and that's not always so easy but um, that's just what kind of came to my mind.
1: Right. I think that's really true. I've, I've seen this very, very often where where te- let's say teens are in crisis. Um, and very often, like if I'll get a phone call from a mom, usually it's because the kids are in crisis, the mom wants to deal with it one way and the husband wants to deal with it another way. Usually, not always, usually the mother is the one seeking professional help and listening to the therapist and reading all the books. And the father is the one saying, that's not even a real thing. And it wasn't a thing when I was a kid and no one had to take pills and look at me, I turned out fine. You know, that's like the stereotypical model. Um, And what I always try to tell parents is being on the same page doesn't mean that you both have to have the same approach to your kids. Because as much as we're saying that being in a marital relationship means fusing and becoming one, but it doesn't mean that you're the same. And different people have different approaches. And I find what sometimes happens, because notice how it's saying, Um, the contentions of a wife because the wife or the mother may be more emotionally tuned into her kids but very often she's the one who's more contentious because what often happens is she tries to manage her husband's relationship with the kid and she tries to be like well You should be like me because look at me being all psychologically evolved and listening to all the experts and you're off doing your own thing, drinking beer and watching football. So she often criticizes her husband and tries to manipulate his relationship with the kids. And when he does things that are not smart, she kicks him under the table and she makes him feel like an idiot. And so what I try to tell mothers is you have to um, you have to put your relationship with your spouse first. That doesn't mean that you both have to have the same relationship with the kids. It just means you have to have respect for each other. And you could say, listen, that's your approach with the kids. That's great. Here's my approach with the kids. You know, and I'm, I'm going to respond this way and you can respond that way. We don't have to be the same, you know, and, and if you feel that your approach is working and you're happy with it, great, you know, but when the woman belittles her husband and makes him feel dumb, then not only do you have a kid problem, but now you have a marriage problem.
0: And yeah, and I was going to say one more thing, which is just a little anecdote that my dad said to me, which has stuck with me forever, is I was like crying about leaving one of my kids, you know, baby, like nothing. There was, this was not a real problem. And, you know, we were going on crying. mean on one vacation. of your older
1: kids leaving home?
0: No, one of my, ba- like I had a baby and we were going on like our first vacation or something. Oh, 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 and God. I was leaving the kid and I was like psychotic and My dad said the best thing you can do for your child, for your children is have a great marriage.
1: Oh, wow. Wise man, your father. Yes. (laughs) Okay, great. Any other thoughts or comments on verse 13? All right, 14. House and wealth are inheritance from fathers. Ume Hashem isha maskalet, but an intelligent wife is from Hashem. Aha. Okay. So going along the same theme here about how much power a woman has in the peace and harmony within her home, right? And we all know women have an incredible amount of power. Oh, hi, Maritza. I didn't see you there. Women have an incredible amount of power, um, women and girls. I'm always like blown away when my girls come home and tell me stories about stuff going on in the classroom. These girls are so smart and women are just grown up girls, right? Where we'll like say one little comment and we will know the powerful impact that that one little comment will have, or, you know, my daughter will come to me in tears because somebody texted her something. And with a small nuance, it can create so much havoc and heartbreak. Right. And so it's like, you know, we might not be as powerful physically as men biologically we're smaller. Right. We may not have as much earning power, although we might, But when it comes to emotional manipulation, and I'm not necessarily saying that as a bad thing, it can be used for the bad or for the good, right? When it comes to like the intuition and feminine wisdom, we are unbeatable. Like, and it's scary, actually, how much power we have. I have always been amazed, like, you know, I grew up like, as you know, I grew up Orthodox, I grew up in a very traditional kind of home, you know. And when I first started getting into education and getting into like, you know, meeting non-Orthodox women for the first time, being becoming friends with people from all across the spectrum, you know, and I, I was kind of assuming that it was going to be like a very feminist vibe, you know, men and women having very equal roles. And every time we tried to invite a family for Shabbat, if, if I invited the woman, she would take care of it. And if my husband would invite <laughs> the man, he would say, well, let me check with my wife. She's she's the social calendar. She's the one I I mean, I'm not going to say never, because maybe there was an exception, but I cannot remember one instance where the man was responsible for the social interactions of the family. I found that very interesting, and it's because us women, we're good at it. We're good at all this social maneuvering. We are we're, we're better at it, frankly. Right. And we can use that for the good or for the bad. If there's somebody that we decide we don't want to have a relationship with anymore, we're going to work out a way to not have a relationship with them anymore right? And if there's somebody we do want to be connected to, we're going to figure it out. So this is saying a house and house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but an intelligent wife is from Hashem, is a gift from Hashem. Why? Because if, and it doesn't mean intelligent, meaning IQ. What it means is a wise person, a person who has moral wisdom, who can use all of those gifts and talents for the good. Okay? So the commentary says, Property and wealth should be passed on from father to son, right? So again, this is, you know. Oh, was that you, Larissa? Wow, he's the exception. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah,
3: he is is the the one with the more sensitive feelings in in our family too. Yeah.
1: He is a mushy guy, come to think of it. Yep. (laughs) Okay. I I have I have met the unicorn. (laughs) Um, Okay. So property and wealth should be passed on from father to son. Okay. Again, this is, you know, a traditional, a traditional view on things. This, however, depends on the wife whose function. And as as I read this, bear in mind that this is, you know, a traditional family view. This, however, depends on the wife whose function it generally is to help her husband succeed in life. Right. So if you think about, you know, the traditional family structure, right. Is the husband would go off to work. The wife would manage house and hearth and kids, right? Or very often you see a, a scenario where a husband has a business and the wife helps him in the business. Of course, we know there are many other models, right? But that a wife very often still, even in egalitarian evolved house, households, the woman is usually more <coughs> responsible for the food and the laundry and the cleanliness of the house. Again, not always People can be employed for these things, but generally speaking, that's how it is. And to manage the house so that all can pass on undiminished to children and grandchildren. Meaning even in this traditional model where the husband is out there earning oodles of money, but if the the wife mismanages the money or the household or mismanages the children, then this guy is not going to have any nachas, so to speak, in passing along his legacy to his kids. So he needs the wife, to keep him on track with all the things that he wants to do, because a wise wife is going to help him actualize his goals and a foolish wife can ruin everything that he's spent his time building up. Yeah. Um... Okay, oh, compare, this goes back to chapter 14, the wisdom of women builds her house, page 200, but skepticism, i.e. a foolishly skeptical woman with her own hands tears it down. So in today's modern era, how would we understand this teaching? The way I understand it is like this. A, a, A husband and wife have an incredible amount of vulnerability with each other, right? You know the passwords to each other's phone, you know the passwords to each other's you know, bank accounts, not that spouses should snoop on each other. They shouldn't. But it should be an open book between spouses where there aren't any secrets. There's nothing to hide. But if a spouse should get into their mind that they want to harm their spouse, I mean, God forbid, obviously, that's a very bad situation. They, they would have the power to hurt them more than anybody else in the world because they have access to all of their vulnerable places. This is true financially and this is true emotionally, too. If you're in a marriage, nobody knows how to hurt your spouse more than you because you know where their weak spots are, you know where their insecurities are and you know where their vulnerabilities are, right? And using those opportunities is a very short-sighted thing to do. That's what a very foolish woman will do, even though you can maybe feel very smart because you're the one who has access to all this information and you can do whatever you wanna do, but really you're shooting yourself in the foot because you are hurting your primary relationship that is in an ideal situation, supposed to fill you up and give you the wings to fly in the rest of your life. Right. So this is what it's saying, that an intelligent wife, a wise wife is from Hashem. That's a gift. And that's a gift that we have to pray for, you know, that young people should pray for, that they should be able to merit an appropriate spouse and soul partner right? And if we're already in a relationship, then we should pray that our marriages should be successful. We should pray for our spouses to, you know, be able to live their best lives and to be our partner in living our best lives. And if we're not in a good relationship, we should pray for it to get better. Uh, And if we're not in a relationship, we can pray to find a relationship in which we do have those blessings. So um, the other way of understanding this verse is that you know, money comes and goes, right? Money passes from one generation to the next. Sometimes you, you know, you have this, I think I told you guys about this sort of silly, but also interesting novel that I read recently called Pineapple Street about this uber wealthy family in New York City and about like how they spend their money. But there was a greater point to the story, which was that there are these extremely wealthy, you know, one percenters who they have so much money, they literally spend a fraction of what they earn and they just pass it all to their kids. And then the kids and that, that money is never touched. It literally just goes from one generation to the next And they're just living off the interest of their investments. And then they also get jobs because what else are you supposed to do all day? You know, and just how the younger generation, these millennials are like, we don't even want to sit on that much money. It feels indecent. It feels totally unethical. We want to distribute it all to charity. And they're like giving away 90 percent of their fortune to charity. Very interesting. (laughs) the point being that money comes and money goes some people have it some people don't have it one generation could have it one generation could not have it look how the economy has changed in the past 5 years alone you know it's it's volatile but a spouse who is strong and 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 wise and good and and devoting our energies to our marital relationship that is a gift from hashem you pray for it you try your best to retain it. You try your best to nourish it and to feed it. And that that is one of life's biggest blessings. OK. um, OK, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to post the verse. It's chapter 19, 14. OK, any thoughts, comments, questions on fourteen? Okay, so we have three more minutes. Let's get in another verse. All right, so verse fifteen is talking about laziness. Hmm. Little topic change here. <clears throat> All right, so fifteen. At casts into a deep sleep. and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. So what we're trying to say is that a person who is I'm not gonna say a person who is lazy because we don't wanna define people by one trait, but a person who acts lazy, let's put it like that. There is a very powerful, tangible benefit in the short run, right? What is the powerful, tangible benefit in the short run? You don't have to work. You get to sit on the couch or laze around in bed or wear your pajamas all day long. And you're like, whoa, go me. I, I have to confess, I looked out the window this morning For those of you who live in cleveland and it was snowing like crazy and i was like maybe i just won't go out today (laughs) (laughs) of course i was kidding but i was like what if i just said this is a great day to take a nap but what if i just turn on my fireplace you know but then what happens a person who does that right A, a healthy normal thinking feeling person Is that after a certain length of time and how long that is will depend on each person. But after a certain length of time, it's going to stop feeling good. And it's going to start feeling bad. And you're going to start feeling yucky and unproductive and gross and sick of yourself. And you're like, self, get up, take a shower, put on some clothes and go do something productive with your life. Because even though our bodies crave laziness, our souls crave productivity. That's what really makes us feel good about ourselves. So the commentary says slothfulness, productivity, right? Idleness, remia, denotes a worse trait that leaves a person hungry in his waking life. So in the beginning, you might not feel very hungry. In the beginning, you might be like, yep, this feels really good. I'm really glad I did this, right? And it's true, your body does feel good. Maybe we can try to upgrade our language in order to be more accurate. When we say, oh, I really want to stay in bed, we should say, oh, my body really really wants to stay in bed. But my soul wants to get up and be productive. Hmm, who should I listen to today, my body or my soul? Well, if you want to feel hungry, meaning if you want to feel that you're missing something, that you're lacking then you should listen to your body because then you're not feeding your soul. You're only feeding your body. And if you only feed your body and not your soul, your soul will be hungry. And your soul is not going to stop being hungry until you give the soul what it wants. And what the soul wants is to live productively and meaningfully and to do good things and to feel that we accomplished and to understand that we have a purpose in this world. That's what your soul wants. Of course, we all need a break so we all need to rest and relax but that is for the purpose of productivity i'm relaxing i'm recharging my batteries why so that i can be productive again cuz that's really the purpose of our life is to be productive again yesterday my son asked me if we could switch cars cuz he has a little electric car and i have an suv and he needed to pick up a piece of furniture from somewhere so i was driving his electric car and it had, it has this like battery. It's super stressful. I don't know if any of you have an electric car. It it has, it has 30 miles on it. And as I'm driving, it's like 25, 24, 23, 22. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, how am I going to get home in time? And finally I, you know, get home and, 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 you know, you can plug in his car in my garage. And I'm like, okay, I'm plugging in the car. Why am I plugging in the car? Because the car likes to be plugged in? No, because if you don't plug in the car, it's not going to drive, Right. We have to plug ourselves in. We have to rest and recharge. Why? So that we can drive again. Resting for the sake of resting is not a human need. That's laziness. That's just feeding your soul. And that's just feeding your body and not your soul. Okay. Any final thoughts today, ladies, on anything that we have discussed today?
3: I was thinking about, I think it's Shawshank Redemption about how like even the prisoners being idle and having all their needs met, um, they were so depressed. And so it wasn't until they had a garden to like be productive and be a contributing member of that society that made them feel so much more purposeful. So it's hard to try to tell parents who want more for their kids than they had that doing everything for them is actually not beneficial because they feel while they they fight you because they don't want to help out Mm. their soul feels crappy yeah around yeah the other thought I had was if there are marriages where somebody is insistent upon seeing somebody else's phone like that's a red flag by the way just saying because I think it probably happens a lot more than we think um that that is like the condition in the marriage of seeing somebody's phone or having the password or whatever, like not in a way that's just like, of course, you know, my password. Cause like, you need to use my camera right now. Like, go for it. Like, so just a side note.
1: Wait, are you saying that spouses should have each other's passwords or should not? No, no
3: mm-hmm.
1: not, not in a way that is because
3: I don't trust you. In a way that's like, yeah, you need to use my phone because you you don't have yours and you want to call our kid or take a picture. Like, okay, yeah, for sure. Your your spouse should have your your password, not in the way of I'm demanding your. Oh, you're password. right. Not in the way of
1: like power and dominance. You're saying.
3: Yes. Yes. <laughs> out of I do not trust you.
1: Right. No, that makes uh, sense.
3: Right. Because that happens a lot more than I than we think. Like, yeah. Interesting. Okay.
1: Okay, thanks, Heather. Thanks, everybody. Have a beautiful day. Good Have a Shabbat. Shabbat shalom. I do, I do just want to say, Thank you. close that um, Sunday will be one hundred days. Yes, since the war began, and since the hostages were taken, um, and some of the mothers of the hostages are asking us to recognize the one hundred days on Sunday. Um, however, you choose to acknowledge that or recognize it in some way, but to help them carry that burden.
3: And today is Rosh Kodesh. So like if you're do yeah. anything.
1: <laughs> That's right. Today is Rosh Chodesh Shvat. It is also my son's 17th birthday. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. It's a big day for the Clobell family, but God willing, we should all have a month with good news and peace. Amen. 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 Roughly I saw Amen.
3: I saw that someone's doing someone's doing a hundred day walk. Starting oh, really? somewhere in
1: beachwood. Yeah. Oh, I did well, not hear about that.
3: I think what they're asking for i'm not at home i'm not in town but they're asking for people to walk at least 18 minutes oh Friday. wow if someone's doing it at the park
1: okay if you have information about that will you send it to me
3: i will definitely do that
1: okay thank you, <laughs> you thank you
2: like, um about Rosh kodesh and prayers being more heard or something what what's
1: the Rosh kodesh yeah Yeah, so Rosh Chodesh, um, Rosh Chodesh is, we have some extra prayers that we say today, praying for a good month. Um, People say the prayer of Hallel, which is thanks and praise to Hashem. Um, Some people have an extra special meal today because it's Rosh Chodesh. There are different ways to honor the day.
0: Thank you. Good Shabbos.
1: Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.